3: Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy.
1: That's what the poster said?
3: See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists
1: to make you happy. Trying to make out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. Okay. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theatres May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Welcome to the best to run home with Joel and Fletch. Andrew Barney Barnett was in the chair for the Bears Head and we spent a bit of time Talking with the Kiwis, much to talk about. Of course, there are some rugby players linked to playing rugby league. Let's have a listen to this. Now, what we might do, this is quite fun. We like doing this, uh, Fletch and I. Let's have
4: a listen. Oh, let's
2: go Every time she comes go back early. into the country, and is this going to cause problematic when I come back in? It's going to take me two hours to get through the airport and border control.
4: You're never going to go down that zero lane again.
2: Damn it. Nope. Damn it. You're
4: always X-raying.
2: Oh, gosh. Okay, well, let's see what border control's like over in Sydney. Boys, are you there?
1: Uh, yes, we are through the fast lane over here. Kirsten Beef, thanks to mate. $20 <laughs> off for five months with mate internet. How are we, guys? Uh, no, we're guys, it's well been here.
2: such a long time. It is so good to hear your voices again.
1: Yeah, uh, it has been a long time because you two have been <laughs> gallivanting and just treating us like a um, second-hand watch.
2: Well, look, we joke about Beaver's attendance record. It hasn't been flash in 2023 Just between Beaver. between the trips to France, and I'm saying numerous trips. I think there were four different trips to France uh, in 2023. He's really been clocking up the air miles, but it's good to be back. Barney, it's so good to be back. Barney,
1: meet Kirst. Meet the bee. This is Barney. How are you guys? Uh,
3: it's, it's been since last summer, I think, I talked to you guys. Yeah, like when this? the
2: professor's on with you.
3: Yeah. This is what now... Our, our
2: two favourites.
3: Mate, I've got to ask, because um, we just tuned in late. What were you trying to smuggle into New Zealand?
2: Okay, okay I hope this doesn't sound stupid. <laughs>
4: raw
3: meat. It was not oh. raw meat.
2: <laughs> it wasn't raw meat. It was biltong. And cocaine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> truth. (laughs) It was built on, people. It was built on. And I still don't see the problem with dried meat in sealed packet. Can you take that into Australia, yes or no?
1: No, we wouldn't do that. No, probably not. Not out of South Africa. Not without
3: getting yourself onto uh, Border Security, one of our favourite shows over here.
2: The people that make it onto Border Security, you just shake your head at them, don't you? Like with the most ridiculous things.
1: It's fantastic. We we, we love it. Now, what we want to talk about is... Uh, We're pinching a couple here. The fight is on, Rugby Union versus Rugby League. So Mm. first we we lose Joseph Swali'i, and Mm. then we get back in return, Nwunga Niatasi, yeah, Marky. And now we're on the cusp, perhaps, of getting Caleb Clark, who's training with the Rabbitohs, and the West Tigers have signed Chiefs winger Solomon Alamalo. Um, Where do we land with these two?
2: Have them. You can have them.
1: Really. Really.
2: We want them to do well. We want our players in New Zealand to do well. And and Solomon hasn't had the biggest rugby career over the last couple of years. He's had a few things going on. So it's good to see him. They'll make the most of him in the NRL, won't they?
4: Yeah, Solomon Solomon Joel was somebody, he came into the scene
2: Freakish talent.
4: When I was uh, an old man at the Chiefs and yep. there was raps on him and he had an amazing build, amazing athlete and for whatever reason, um, hasn't... Hasn't had the rugby career, I think, that we all thought he might have. And he's just sort of faded away a bit. But if he gets everything right, he could he could really be something.
2: Fullback, winger beef.
4: You'd start him at winger, obviously, in league, for so, while he learns his trade. So just on Solomon, and
1: you spoke about how it hasn't panned out how he would like, Has did he have like a, a 12-month or 18-month period where he was just absolutely dynamite?
4: He, he, had a, he had a period under uh, um, a guy a coach that you guys sacked uh, Dave Rennie who uh, was a little bit better than Eddie uh, he he had him absolutely firing as a 21 year old and he was he was going places like it was a matter of when not if he was going to be an all-black and then it sort of Renz left and, and a few things went off the off, off the tracks for Solomon and uh, I'm excited by seeing him in the NRL because he could be something.
2: But he's one that's never fully reached his no. potential in rugby, whereas Caleb Clark has been a world beater. His first year in the All Blacks, he yep. was probably the best player in the All Blacks that year at, what, 19, 20?
4: Yeah. He, he's a whole different proposition. Like, obviously, you're going to need your uh, no uh, no uh, salary cap credit. Who do uh, you compare to him Caleb to Clark?
2: in the NRL? <sighs>
4: Jeez, who would you compare him to? He's got um, thighs on
2: him. He's got thighs no, on him the size of...
4: You'd compare him to... Who's who's my Penrith boy? To'o. Oh, okay. So, really? But, so another but winger? Pro- another winger. Yeah. But probably probably a little bit more... He'd probably be a bit taller than uh, To'o. Big and guy. And he, he could
2: move into the centres, potentially. He has potentially. a big unit.
4: He's got quads on him like uh, <laughs> you've, ne- you've never seen. So... I, my only concern for Caleb, and it's a criticism of him in rugby, and I know your boys' mm. attitudes towards towards work ethic is whether he would his involvements, and obviously as, as a winger, he'd have to take a carry every set of six when they're bringing it back, and that would be something that he'd probably have to have to get sorted. But as far as ability, if he got that right, he'd be like, he'd be a Kiwi within twelve months, sort of thing. Wow, he would, wow, he would kill it. He uh. would absolutely kill it if he commits to it. But. I just, I just wonder if he's up for contract renegotiations again over here. Who knows? But okay. there's like
2: this interesting conversation going on at the moment because there's obviously this coach in All Blacks um, coaching re- – change in coaching regime. Mm. Four new coaches in, clean slate, four years into the World Cup, so they'll be looking to bring in new talent. And some of these players that have been there before won't make it back into this environment. So that's where other opportunities come up, don't they?
1: Yeah, you're in a clean slate kind of mood. You got rid of your Prime Minister, the All Blacks coach. Uh, we're the, a mess. Yeah, the, the Kiwis beat the Australians in the Rugby League by 30. You got rid of him. Uh, and now. <laughs> you can't <laughs> bring Ball meat into the country. And, and now you're getting rid there? of Caleb, Caleb Quad Clark. <laughs> um, so they're all coming over. But um, So you're tipping Caleb Quad Clark to be the one, uh, potentially, if the Bunnies. Geez, I've got some outside backs now, haven't Yeah,
3: they seen don't us? they? What? They'll be stacked. Yeah. <laughs> stacked yeah. in that back line and centres. Holy dooly.
2: We need some to come the other way, though. I mean, Joseph's certainly great to come into the Wallabies, but we need a few more to come this way, don't we? We need some superstars of rugby league.
4: Who, who are you was, looking for? Let's do some horse trading. Uh, if I'm Australia, who am I looking for? There's only one Australian rugby league. No, the one that I think could change the way it's all going and happen quickly, David Fafita. Oh, Really? really? He would be the he would be the one that sticks out to me like a sore thumb. Get him, turn him into a second five in rugby, which is where your Sonny played. Yep. And he would be an absolute game changer for the Wallabies. All these other ones that they talk about throwing millions at just it doesn't make sense to me. David Fafita would be the one I would go all in on if I was well. They ones, need a
2: coach first, to be fair. Eddie's gone, isn't he? Well,
4: oh, Captain coach.
3: On? What do you reckon?
4: <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, no, that's where that's where I'd go. For
1: uh, Aussie rugby. What about this young fellow who I actually didn't only learn this at the end of the season? So we've got a kid over here for the Newcastle Knights called Leo Thompson, and as it yes. turns out, I understand he's a twin, and his twin brother plays in the rugby called Tyrone Thompson. Uh, he's signed with the Knights in 2025. What do we know of him?
4: Yeah, well, he, he's. He the brothers. The brothers at of yeah. Hawke's Bay, weren't they?
1: So, like the
2: Frizzales. One's yeah. playing rugby, one's playing league, and they're both monsters. Yeah. Well, he,
4: turned, he he put in a fairly good shift for the Kiwis when they won that uh, tournament at the end of the year too, didn't they? Did. That, that one they won 30-0, if I remember rightly.
2: Did that happen?
4: Yeah, it happened.
2: What, our Kiwis? Our Kiwis. How oh, good. Yeah.
3: <laughs> was that not broadcast in Europe where you were over there?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it quite made it over uh, to Morocco, No. <laughs>
1: Yeah, we need to we need to bring something. It's just kind of the elephant in the room at the moment, mm. and uh, people are saying, "Oh, Eddie Jones trader" and all this sort of stuff. And look, um, there's been no bigger trader action than a Kiwi who's in this building at the moment. Uh. Gibbo, do you wish to share your sentiment with the listening Senz audience?
0: Yeah, well, I've already apologised to half the nation, so I can do the other half here. Yeah, look, I've been saying that Ireland punches above their weight more than New Zealand does. Because I was sorry. saying, I was
1: saying New Zealand, I believe.
0: Sorry? I was
1: saying New Zealand. Gaelic me. football.
0: Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. I reckon in just in terms of population, they're a better sporting What's their sporting population? Nation. Five million. Same as yours. Same well, as us.
2: Same as us. We're better than Ireland. Yeah. Yeah,
0: uh, but in rugby union and in netball, like, what about Gaelic football and hurling and association football, which is soccer?
2: Those are sports well, that's that what, how many people yeah. play? That's what I'm saying. You
0: guys are great
4: game.
3: at
1: yeah. AFL. Yeah, yeah correct.
3: Well, I didn't yeah. say
0: anything about Australia, Beaver. Please don't do this to me. You're my favourite player growing up. I don't want to hate you. So, Ronan is good too. Ronan is great.
1: So what about, guys, what about old uh, Soliders' wet cardboard over here, Gibbons? Yeah. He, 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 I said, give me your number one reason why you think that New Zealand, pound for pound, do not perform as well as Ireland. He said, oh, mate, just look at the Six Nations record. Yep. You don't even play in it, do you? <laughs> <laughs>
4: Conor
1: McGregor versus Israel Adesanya. Yeah. Who's better?
3: <laughs> you Please. 2
0: versus Dave Dobbin. Who's better?
3: Oh, oh here he Dave right? Dobbin's Probably out yeah. there for me. Yeah.
0: yeah. Anyway, sorry, New Zealand. I'll be back home
1: for Christmas. <laughs> yeah. Willie well, though? Not, <laughs> yeah. not with this border control yeah. That, yeah. that stopped <laughs> Kurt's bringing me That's in. right. <laughs> your, your new name's Biltong. Uh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> what else is happening, guys?
4: Oh, well, we're, we're slowly getting our life back in order. Obviously, curse's first show back today. I've Beavers been...
2: second yeah. <laughs> of the year. Oh. <laughs> 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 are, are He's still we... recovering. Uh, I, I don't know if you heard, but he actually came out of retirement yet again. He doesn't know when to give it up, this guy. <laughs> turns 40, so turns 40 so in the desert in Dubai <laughs> and then decides to break a rib and break his leg at the same time running around on the field.
1: Who
4: else was over there for that? Um... Well, some of your boys were over yeah. there. Oh, H- Hoffy was over there. He was running short balls off Tommy Loi. Um, so they had
2: a rugby league team playing tens. An
4: ex-Wigan team, coached by Andy Farrell. Um, and thankfully they got knocked down in the quarterfinals because I saw Hoffman walk past me, and I thought, Joel, I don't want to be in front of that.
1: not the Hoffman. (laughs) Uh, We've got to go, guys. Uh, Great to catch up. If we don't speak before Chrissy, all the very best, and uh, thanks for another great year. Missed you
2: guys. Bye. Thanks, guys.
1: Welcome back to the best of the run home with Joel and uh, Fletch with Barney in the chair. We caught up with Bozza, the great uh, Mark Bosnich, and, well, the big topic, we spoke Champions League, we spoke Premier League. We spoke West Tigers board, and we spoke, more importantly, Manchester United. What's Pepe Le Pewing? This bloke I just love talking to, but you never know where he is. And the pool stage of the UA for Champions League wraps up tomorrow at 4.55 p.m. Uh, Australian Daylight Savings Time. Every match is exclusive and ad-free, live and on demand. Around the grounds we go. Mark Bosnich. Boser, how are you, mate?
5: Good afternoon, Joel. Afternoon, Andrew. How are you, mate? Where
3: do we find you this Very fine good. afternoon?
5: Uh, on the way to uh, my son's football training out to Daceyville, so we're in the car on the way out there. Um, so he's uh, he's finished his little mini tournament. They have he's only six, and and they finished their training up uh, on second last training sessions today. Last training is on Friday, so there we go.
1: Tell you what we need to do. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, remember that game we used to play on the Commodore 64 called Where in the World Is Carmen San Diego? And there'd be a few clues. Yes. I saw this guy who was in this colour car and he was heading this way and he said this. We need to do this before the Bozza segments, I reckon, to find out exactly where he is. Uh, Bozza, Champions League this morning. What was the mop-up?
5: Well, the mop-up, unfortunately for Manchester United supporters uh, like myself, was that they didn't qualify, Ooh. and they didn't even qualify coming in third to go into the to drop down to the Europa League. They actually finished fourth by losing to Bayern Munich one nil at Old Trafford, and the performance, what to be honest, was okay. Um, but uh, the bottom line is it wasn't really lost this morning. It was lost in the games that they had against Galatasaray in Copenhagen recently. But it's a disaster for Manchester United because any any well even football supporter who saw that group at the beginning, without no disrespect to Galatasaray and to Copenhagen, who have done absolutely fantastic, Copenhagen's qualified for their first knockout stage, only second one of all time, but their first one since two thousand and ten. Anyone would have said, you know, that should be Bayern Munich and Manchester United, no problem whatsoever. But the woes continue for eight ten ten and his men, and the you know the, the challenges do not get any easier. They play Liverpool away. On Sunday, and that will be without quite a few of their players, including Bruno Fernandes. And after last night, it looks like Harry Maguire and Luke Shaw won't play as well. So, some very big decisions to be made uh, by the new twenty-five uh, percent stakeholder, Sir Jim Ratcliffe, who's uh, bought into the club on the condition that he gets control of the football department. So, the big question is going to be, as with any business, when new people come in, is he going to stick with Ten Hag? Or is he going to basically say, well, look, listen, we're going to go a different direction? I think a great indicator will be in January when the transfer window opens, will they back him in terms of the funds? If they do, then I think that they've got plans for him long term. If they don't, then it could well be said that the writing's on the wall. The one thing that will dictate pretty much immediately whether he goes or he stays, if he continues to lose game after game after game, uh, there will be no decision to make. He'll have to go.
1: Hey, Boz, eh? if you had to backtrack right what was the defining point where you just thought once upon a time Manchester United were always going to be this absolute global powerhouse and then it's just seemingly well and truly lost that same gloss what would you put it down to does it coincide with Sir Alex Ferguson was there a player who left what do you specifically pinpoint it to
5: I, I definitely think it coincides with Sir Alex Ferguson retiring but I think the malaise began a little bit earlier I think it has to be said that when the glazers took over and they took on a, a massive debt i think that that was a mistake from the previous owner the edwards martin edwards family uh, to allow that to occur and manchester united are arguably the biggest sporting brand in the whole world and i don't really think that you should allow anyone to buy that brand servicing so much debt i mean in the in the earl i mean they're still paying a lot of interest on the debt that they have at the club but in the early years, it was something in the range of 80, like 85 £90 million pounds a year, just in interest alone. Now, there'll be a lot of finance people out there who will be saying, well, well, that's OK for a club of Manchester United stature. Yes, but you've got to understand in football, that money can be used to go and buy top players. Now, the malaise, let to Sir Alex Ferguson, has been gradual. There's no doubt about that. But I don't think there's no coincidence. And this is why I'm really reluctant for them to sack Ten Hag pretty much every two or three years since, since Ferguson's retired. They've come up with a new manager, yeah, and the whole thing has to change. I mean, and if if we look at the example, I say Liverpool. I mean, Klopp in his first season, I think finished eighth. Then he had two fourth place finishes. Then he started to really challenge. Mikel Arteta, who's now manager of Arsenal, you know, first two seasons eighth, eighth. Okay, he did win an FA Cup, it must be said. Then fifth. Then last season second. So the it, you know, I would love to see them. You know you know, basically stand faster in the situation, stick by the manager. But like I said, it becomes so hard, Joel, as you know, in any sport, regardless of it's football, whatever, regardless of the... If somebody keeps losing, keeps losing, keeps losing, unfortunately for the for managers all around the world, it's much easier to change them than it is to change the whole footballing team.
3: Do you think maybe they're a victim of their history of success in the sense that they've built up a supporter base that just expects success and don't have the patience for the, the rebuild phase that perhaps they need. Oh, well,
5: yes and, I mean, yes and no. I mean, the Halcyon days uh, when they were the first English team to ever win the European Cup now called the Champions League uh, in in the late 60s, you know, when they had, you know, the, the late uh, Sir Bobby Charlton, George Best, Dennis Law. And then after that, they suffered a period in the 70s when they were actually relegated to the second division. So it's kind of happened before, but you know, they've always been an absolutely massive club. And, you know, it was Liverpool for 20 years who had that success that they dipped off for quite some. They didn't win the title then for, for for over 20 years. And Manchester United are sort of heading in that direction. I mean, things do come and go in football. People just think that, you know, because there's no salary cap and because of the money, things are constant. It It, it is a constant battle. I mean, even Manchester City right now, regardless of the backing that they've got, are going through a poor period. But it just goes to show, like I said, although money can shorten the odds... In terms of your chances of winning and winning major trophies they don't guarantee it in our sport and the, the thing is that people who are detractors from eric ten Hag will point to us that he has been given money to spend but as i made the point this morning to the boys on the show you know they were interested for harry kane who ended up going to bayern munich You actually set up the goal today uh, for kingsley coman the top players in the top ilk Okay, so when it was my turn to leave and I wanted to go to a club where I I wanted to win major trophies, Manchester United is the top of my list. For the top players now, Manchester United are not the top of their list because they know, at best, at the moment, it looks as though they might win a a cup competition, a, a league cup, an FA Cup, but they're not going to win one of the big ones, a European trophy, Champions League, or a title. And that looks the case for the foreseeable future.
1: Okay, on to the Premier League, boys, Tottenham bounce back, but they've had a tricky month or so. Uh, Villa are flying.
5: Go Villa. Yeah. Go Aston Villa. You know, I must say, uh, the only other there was only two other times uh, that I've known to be feeling like this at Aston Villa, uh, and I was involved both times, especially back in the inaugural Premier League season of 1992-93, and we played Manchester United at home and beat them 1-0, and that was just before Christmas, and I thought, well, we've got a real opportunity here. We had some really experienced players who had won the title before the likes of Kevin Richardson, Ray Hart and Steve Staunton, Dean Saunders, some really poor McGrath, some really top players. We ended up having a title race with Manchester United and Norwich, funny funny or not, or believe it or not, and ended up finishing second. The other time was in 98-99 where we went unbeaten for the first, I think it was like about 15, 16 games. But deep down at 98-99, you just didn't have the same feeling as we had in 92-93 that we could really win it. And they're a real opportunity they beat Manchester City during the week. They beat Arsenal on the weekend. Uh, they, they've got a fantastic manager. They've got a very good spine on the side. And you know, at home, they've just broken their home Premier League record of consecutive win. They that win against Arsenal on the weekend was their 15th consecutive home win in the Premier League, which is which has broken a record. And, you know, they're in the Conference League, which is the third tier European competition, which they can afford to, Joel, Mm. play their second string side up until it gets to serious times around the last eight or so, which is an advantage because, you know, when games are coming thick and fast, it's all right when things are going well. But if they're not, it's amazing how many players all of a sudden pick up ailments or bruises or whatever, and they don't want to play. So, um, you know, so far as I'm concerned, this is going to be one of the most open title races there's been in in a long time, and Aston Villa are definitely a contender.
1: Welcome back to The Best of the Run Home with Joel and Fletch. Damien Oliver, what a career he's had, and he's going to wrap it up all on the weekend. Brian Martin, a legendary race caller. He's been all across his career, reveres him as one of the finest he's ever seen. We might have squeezed in a little bit of Fields of Omar chat as well. Sad news this year, because my favourite Australian story, sporting story, full stop, well, it's maybe been usurped by uh, Ivan Cleary being able to give his son... The Clive Churchill medal. But it's a dead set photo finish. I've shared it with our listeners many, many times where a bloke called Brian Martin wants to grow up and be a premier race caller. One day gets the opportunity to call a cox plate. Uh, he has a horse that he can't sell. That horse happens to run in a cox plate. He calls the race. It wins. And then he has the audacity, the hide, the temerity to the gall for that same scenario to happen twice. So he couldn't get rid of the
3: horse, and then yep. the horse wins the cox plate that he's calling. The premier race in Australia. Oh, so, we're, And we're sure this isn't a fine cotton type arrangement no, where he just
1: called whichever horse he wanted no, to win? No, no, no that's right. <laughs> no, but I'm pleased to say the great man who I love, Brian Martin, joins the run home with Joel and Fletch. G'day, Brian.
6: G'day, boys. Great to be with you.
1: Uh, I set that story up, and it is my favourite Australian sporting story. But sadly... Very sad news came in June, didn't it?
6: Yeah, it did. Um, he uh, he passed away at 26 years of age. So he'd uh, he'd been fantastic, and he he won the Cox Plate on that um, on that Saturday in 2006. And by the Monday morning at court, to eight, he was out at Living Legends, the sort of rest home for champions, which I was part of the board to set that up uh, a couple of years earlier, and we wanted him to have a good home and. When he got out there at eight, uh, caught to eight on the Monday morning, he was met by a couple of old timers, Might and
1: Power,
6: uh, Loose and Up and Doremus, all champions in their own right, were there waiting for him. They all had a chat and went to their respective paddocks and that's how living legends grew and he was there for 18 years so he had a wonderful afterlife after the racetrack but he gave us uh, immeasurable pleasure and um, now I I won't forget those Cox plates because he ran in it five times and... One two and was placed twice so he uh, and he was nine when he won it was uh, you know he announced his retirement on the friday and come on Foo get out and do your best mate on set though which he did he did and um, a great chapter in our lifetime and and in racing really
1: well that's a part of the story that I, I have forgotten brian so so foo or fields of omar last ever run was a winning cox plate is that right
6: Yeah, yeah. in running, he would equal a record of uh, of running in five, and it was held by a horse from the mid-40s, and um, he would then go on, if he could win, he'd be the oldest at nine years of age. The oldest had been eight, which was uh, superimposed in 92, but a nine-year-old had never won the Cox Plate, so he had history stacked against him, but we announced on the Friday, win, lose, or draw, this was his swan song. Wow. And... Like great athletes, um, he went out and produced arguably his his best ever. He came from last and one of the closest finished ever. So it was sort of one of those things that you know it's a Hollywood movie set up to do it, and and he did it, which was which was remarkable. So he went out a champion as his career was. So it was great. You know, you look back and you think, well, how did he do it? How did I get through it? How did we all do it? And and it's you know it's a part of history, I suppose, in many ways. But in my time, I won't see anything like that again. Wow. And to be a part of it, you know, yeah. you know purchase the horse and put him among, amongst friends and everything else. And he broke down twice. He did a suspensory in the front, near side front, and the offside front. So they don't really come back, but he came back stronger each time. That, that's the amazing thing.
1: Rest in peace, Fields of Omar. What, what an amazing yeah. story. Now, you said
3: on the Monday he was out at the the rest home and uh, he was greeted by Might and Pear and a few of the other great horses. Yeah. Um, I've yeah. spent a bit of time around uh, retired athletes uh, working both here in <laughs> Fox. And one thing they love to do is just talk up their career with the other blokes. And Do, do you reckon there was a bit of that competitive uh, nature going on with the horses as well?
6: Not a doubt in the world. When the lights sort of all went down and... You know, the uh, there was a bit of darkness they go from paddock to paddock of the mm. boys and sort of all well, what did you do. Well, I ran in firecocks cox plays. you didn't win a Japan Cup, I'm better loosen up, you know, set aside. I'm Might and Power. I won the Caulfield Melbourne Cup yeah. and the Cox played. Never never heard of you, you know, the, all this sort of stuff would've go on and, <laughs> and they're all geldings, so you know, they didn't have stud careers. But it's interesting. There was a, there was sort of a bit of a pecking order out there. And when he when he went to the paddock, first time into the paddock, there was a large paddock we'd prepared for him and better loosen up was there and they went behind the shed like there's a shed that they stand up and sleep, you know, out of the, the weather um, at night. And the two of them disappeared because there were cameras rolling on the on the launch day at particular time, and they, uh, they disappeared and there was a squeal. Someone, one of the two got kicked, mm. and then they both just trotted out. So I would say, you know, the herd animal instinct came back to them and they said, well, you're sharing this paddock with me, um, one of us has got to be boss and I reckon that's what I reckon they sorted it out pretty quickly and from <laughs> then on they're inseparable because when one of them would go out to do a promotion you know go to Flemington to parade or go to a shopping centre which which we did out of Living Legends and still do on a major scale uh, I remember when we took Fields of Omay or Fo out of the panic Better Loosen Up would squeal and run the fence and you know his mate was gone the same when Better Loosen Up would disappear foo would get upset so the, the palling up, um, and you've got to go back to the animal, where the animal came from like 3,000 years ago from the from the deserts of Arabia. You know how they had a pecking order. Um, there was always the king horse, like the leading colt, and the other guys would all know their place and push down the line. So it still went on, and I think that's a part of the horse, although we've domesticated the horse so much over the years. The horse, by his nat- natural instincts, will still... Uh, still have that sort of that sort of thing, and that's still sort of in their in their breed, and you never get rid of that. And a lot of people don't understand that. And they say, even with the you know the weanlings and 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 the foals when they run, you know when the feed track turns up, there'll always always be the the, the foal who get up the front, and the others that all follow suit and get behind. And the boy up the front would be the strongest, and it's only the poor little weak bugger down the back that'll take a little longer to uh, to mature. So. It's still there, you know, the animal instinct, and it's something we should always remember. That's what they are. They're originally a herd animal.
3: This is – this is. are you still involved with Living Legends? Because I'm just thinking uh, – we, we've got The Bachelor on here yeah. uh, on the on Channel 10 earlier. We were watching that, and I was thinking, you know what? We need better reality TV. Yeah. What yeah. better show yeah. than like a Meerkat Manor-style <laughs> yeah. arrangement at Living Legends, looking yeah. at the pecking order, seeing what all the old horses are up to? I yeah. Mean, I think yeah, there's a show in yeah, this, yeah, and I, you've sure. got just the voice for it too, Martin. I reckon you can be our voiceover guy. <laughs> we get Osha maybe to do yeah. some, a bit of intros and stuff, but then we get you as the uh, the David Attenborough
6: type. Yeah, you know, I'll walk the paddocks and you know, patchy cats there now and Silent Witness and all those guys. Uh, a lot of the old-timers have, have gone to the uh, big race course in the sky, but there's a memorial garden that Fu was uh, his ashes were laid to rest there a couple of weeks um, ago and we uh, we all went out and uh, the piper played Amazing Grace as <laughs> the car the, the, the sort of the utility took his box of ashes down there it was lowered in and a plaque set up and that's mm. you know they crossed the Rainbow Bridge as they say and uh, yeah it's a beautiful part of it all it's it completes the story that's that's a fabulous thing about it
1: Brian a story's about to be completed on the weekend and I know you've had a lot to do with his career you've called many of his great great wins I'm talking about Damien Oliver. And the story that has been Damien Oliver, it'll be it for him. Uh, fittingly, back in Perth, what's your great memories of the man they call Ollie?
6: Well, you're probably talking to the right guy in terms of his career because when he came to Melbourne, um, I was the chief caller here, and he came here in the later eighties to uh, be apprentice to uh, Lee Friedman, and he pimply faced little little kid, you know, and he uh, he was he was plucked out of WA. One of the Freedmans recognised his ability because he was shooting the lights out as an apprentice over there. He started only in March of '88, um, and he won a race on the on a country track, and he progressed from there. and And the Freedmans saw, you know, saw a lot in him. It was, it was a good call. And he came over here. and His brother Jason, who was to die later, of course, mm-hmm. in the fall in 2002, Jason had come here and and ridden quite well a bit for the Freedmans, but ridden through Victoria and then got a bit homesick and went home. Uh, but they rec- recognised that Ollie potentially could, uh, could be one of our leading riders. Well, he surpassed that. And calling him when he first arrived, um, you could see quite clearly the kid had it, and he won his first Group 1 in 1990 uh, on Submariner at Caulfield. I remember calling that race. and Bart Cummings trained the horse, so he'd, he'd been palled up with one of the best in the business. And then to see his sort of career unfold... Uh, to get to 128 um, Group 1s and 3,168 outright winners, and that's a record. But he went on to win 10 premierships, and the record was held by Billy Duncan and Roy Higgins and many years gone by of 11 premierships in Victoria. Ollie won 10. Uh, he won the four Caulfield Cups. The record was five. Held by Scobie Breesley, won three Melbourne Cups. Ollie, and two close seconds, but the record is held by Bobby Lewis and Harry White of four Melbourne Cups. So he was on the on the cusp of actually creating records in the biggest races as well. But they'll never get back. Or well, I think the only jockey that's going to get get and do the uh, the Group One record will be uh, J Mac um, James MacDonald because he's he's well ahead of schedule. But Ollie holds a the record there. But he um, he had a a brilliant career and he, he, from day one you could see that he was hungry. He was mean and he was lean. Uh, He got very homesick over here as a kid, and a couple of times he nearly sort of, you know, burst away from the stable and went home because he really was a a Western Australian, Perth, hometown boy. All his family were there, including his mum. So just to watch him make it here on his own, and the Freedmans, you know, they, they were tough customers, those boys, Lee, when they started out, and his brothers, Anthony and Michael and Richard, when they started out, and they they became an enormous success in the late 80s through the 90s and very tough taskmasters. So I reckon they would have given him buggery along the way mm. uh, if he didn't shape up. And a couple of times he nearly bolted and went home. But he rode the, rode the bumps and very quickly just started um, on a, you know, a magic carpet ride of success and, and wins in every major race. And he could make horses sing. Really, um, I'd see him riding at Mowie on a Thursday or packing him on a Friday and uh, he'd be there for the group one day on the Saturday. And that was put down to a combination of things like just absolute natural talent, bred to be a jockey. His dad was a jockey. His brother was a jockey. So he had all the ingredients, perfect timing, uh, knew where the post was, you know, in a photo finish, very few would beat him but always hungry, always hungry. And I said to him, I was doing a, a podcast for the Melbourne Cup a couple of years ago, and I said, why is it where you are now? You know, you're the, you're the number one man here. Why would you go to Bendigo on a, on a wet, you know, middle of the winter mm. Thursday? And he said, well, you never know. He said, you might be something you've been riding track work for Danny O'Brien and you're running the fillies running in a maid and You never know, she might, you know, go through to the Oaks and you want to be there where they start. So, uh, and I took that on board, and he, shortly after I did that interview, uh, and I said, is there one to follow? He said, yeah, I thing that I did win the maiden on recently, um, I forget its name for the time, but it was just a couple of years ago, and she went on to win the Oaks. So I could oh. see where he'd be there at the start, right at the start of their career, but he had this innate ability to recognise the talent, um, and that, that's, what, that's what made him so great. And his timing, as I say, uh, his strength, and even his fellow riders, you know, they refer to him as the greatest of all time because he, uh, even at 50 years of age, he was still punching the and outriding everyone else. So, where do you start and talk about yeah. it with his, you know, his greatest wins? But it's just phenomenal.
1: Brian Martin, thanks for the insight. Fields of Omar, uh, of course, the great man Damien Oliver. And next time, we'd love to chat about J Mac and what he's achieved at Hong Kong, and what you've achieved in your career. And uh, you've been very, very kind to share some of that great, uh, invaluable insight with us. Uh, Brian Martin, thanks for joining The Run Home with Joel and Fletch. Good on you guys. Welcome back to The Best of The Run Home with Joel and Fletch. And what about a best of? This bloke's one of the best Aussies you'll ever speak to. So relaxed, so comfortable with all the time he afforded us. We're talking about one of Australia's greatest cricketers of all time, Matty Hayden. Joining The Run Home with Joel and Fletch, with Barney in the chair, we say hello to Matthew Hayden. Haydos, how are you, mate?
7: Yeah, good, thanks. How's it going?
1: Mate, we're going pretty good to be speaking to a bloke who played 103 Tests, close to 9,000 runs, 30 tons to be in that that green cap or that green helmet, and to get 30 tons, 29 fifties, you must be fired up this time of year.
7: <laughs> yeah, yep. summer, how good! I mean, we had, I think, arguably one of the greatest grand finals of all time. That's just you know sets the set on that. But now we're into cricket season, and we got. You know, this Test match is going to have some, you know, really special connotations around it. You know, Davy Warner, obviously, you know, the way that he went through the World Cup and, you know, back on shores, you've got Travis Head. That's 96 away from 3,000 runs. Uh, men's, you know, Test cricket. Um, Smudgy, talk about my 100. Smudgy's got 32. He's just one away from, you know, getting to the second highest uh, above Stephen War and uh, Ricky Ponting, obviously, the highest. you got Lino that's sitting on not 496 wickets, Um, you know, so four wickets away from his 500. And there's been two Kings, one of which you just mentioned there, Warney and McGrath. You know, done that and he joins that in a really elusive club. Uh, And then from the Pakistan side as well, you've got Baba Azam, who's just recently relinquished his rights uh, as the captain. Um, Shah Masood, Masood has just, you know, come into that particular position Fresh off a really good 100, in fact, 200 uh, against the Prime Minister's 11. And you've always got the dark horse of Pakistan. I mean, they just roll out great fast bowlers. You could pick 20 fast bowlers mm. from Pakistan, and each one of them would give us uh, a little tingle, you know, when it comes to this Perth wicket. So, boys, plenty to look forward to.
3: Mate, it has been such a big year for Australia in the cricket Um you know, and I think this like so much to look forward to as well. But with this side, this current side, mm-hmm. Pat Cummins' men, um, obviously they've they've got the the they've just won the uh, the World Cup. They've got the T20 World Cup. They've got the yeah. World Test Championship, and they've retained the Ashes. Um, in terms of mm. like generate we always talk about generations of Australian cricket. Um, You were part of an amazing generation, a golden generation, if you will. How do you guys see this generation now as stacking up uh, in in terms of uh, great teams of the past?
7: Well, there's no doubt it's a great team. Uh, You know, that World Cup, if you just want to hit the pause button there for a second, to to see firsthand how the group really galvanised behind Pat Cummins and Andrew McDonald at senior management level. Um, to win that World Cup. I mean, literally, it, it's kind of, from an Indian perspective, it was kind of like the Titanic.
3: Yeah. Mm. You know, it,
7: was, it was the ship that was never going to sink, right? Like, you just had 10 unbeatable um, games in a row for, for Team India, and there was just this great optimism and throw, throw the weight of, you know, 1.3, one point four billion people behind it, and you just it was just something that was never going to go down. Team India was, was called right from the get-go as being the best side and yet here this team is, under the leadership of Pat Cummins, uh, to another title, you know, the sixth uh, international title and World Cup title for for Team Australia. Um, And and some of the, um, you know, remarkable performances that sat in that, uh, including Pat's as well in the back half of the tournament, not only as a leader, but also the bowler. Um, And then you had Joshie Hazelwood that was sitting there, always the ever, a bit like McGrath used to have in, in his role, uh, Mitchell Stark, it didn't really matter who you, and this is where my, my point gets, it didn't really matter who you pick in that side, even Marnus Lavishane, um, and of course, Travis Head, they all won matches in some way. Um, either, and, and one of the great hallmarks from all those, you know, iconic uh, test-playing nations that, that you talk about is that they have incredible defensive fielding efforts, and Davey Warner really led the charge there with Travis, Head and, and Manus Lavishain. Um You know, so just, I think it's comparable. Um, you win a World Cup away from home, especially in India, that's huge. The T20 World Cup, we also saw how great a series that was. The Ashes in the Test match, I guess, is the only question mark. I mean, you get 2-0 two, two up in a series and then you end up drawing the series. Yes, we retain the Ashes, but I think, you know, this side is probably wanting to achieve more than that. Um, you know, We've always, I think, as a playing nation, been great at once the jugular's re- revealed, just going in hard for the kill. Mm. And it didn't quite happen through through our winter. But having said that, look, this side is just something else.
1: It'll be something else shortly. No David Warner, whenever that may be, but it'll be soon soon enough. Usman Khawaja, his career at some stage. Hados uh, will be done and dusted. It'll be a terrific career as well. So you sitting back observing now as the fan, I suppose and working with Channel 7, yeah. who do you see you know, in the next three, four years, if it's you having the selection to be the one and two of Australia?
7: Yeah, well, look, the first thing is that you have to go, and this has been an age-old strategy from a selection point of view, is that who's the, the individual's best performing in shield cricket? And Cameron Bankoff, for mine, is just, we walk into that scenario straight away. Yep. He's, him and the, and the actual Perth unit itself have been phenomenal. Um, you know, so then you've got someone like Matt Renshaw, who, you know, again fresh off a hundred. Um, I mean, he's been waiting in the wings. When you think of Wiseman Khawaja, he's only played sixty-six Test matches, fellas. Like the average is forty-seven. Mm,
4: wow. You know, he's
7: he's got fifteen tons and five thousand runs. Like he he should have, in my book, been Davy Warner's equal. You know, one hundred and nine games. You know, eight and a half thousand runs. You know, averaging forty. You know, but it wasn't his time. So you've got to have, my point is, you've got to have a bit of luck as well. Like, it's got to be your time. But, you know, there's two names straight away that I think have been in and around the fringes of the Australian cricket team for for a fairly long period of time, uh, putting runs on the board, in particular Bancroft. Um, But for fans out there, I wouldn't be too worried or concerned about, you know, having replacements for some of these players because... You know, the investment in the grassroots of our game is second to none. That's why a nation of 25, 26 million people can beat 1.3 billion people because the, the focus and the, and the investment in the grassroots at club level, you know, state level in the Shield program, uh, now the Big Bash League, which is, you know, screening all through the summer, um, it's there and it produces world-class cricketers and world-class athletes even before they're world-class cricketers. So don't worry.
3: Mate, now just on the the retirement of Dave Warner and the the conversation around um, who goes into that next spot, you um, obviously had uh, a great partnership at the top of the order with your old mate, Justin Langer. How important is it that Mm. opening pairs have good chemistry and understand each other's games? Um, Because obviously that might be something you're looking for. Yeah, very important. It's one of
7: the unique... Uh, roles within any kind of team is those combinations. You could argue that, you know, right at the top of the bowling order as well, the, the, the two men that walk out with a baggy green and take the new ball, that's a, you know, really important combination. Um, I'd always sort of like bracket it at one, two and three. You know, I think, I think that's kind of like what they call in the Australian cricket team culture, the engine room. That was started with David Boone and, you know, Jeff Marsh. Uh, Mark Taylor, you know, recently inducted into the um, SCG Hall of Fame. Um, it's really important that they're individually got these great skill sets. But then, as you've seen by the Warner and Kawaja partnership, um, it's been phenomenal. And so, you know, you build this, I, I think most of the time you look down at the side and you go individually, okay, well, here we go, we're going to look at Steve Smith, we're going to look at Smudgy's performances, but when you look at him, you look at his line item in his own performance. When you come to one, two, and three, in our day it was JL myself and Ricky Ponting, you didn't really separate those three. It was kind of just, you want that in a block. You've almost like vote in a block, if that yeah. makes sense. That's how important it is You know, to the culture of the group. It's no different to the front rowers in yeah. in rugby league or Rugby union, you know, they you don't often score tries, but gee, they do. Come state of origin time, they do the heavy lifting, and they get recognised for that, albeit in a much more you know um, low key way than a than a winger, for example. The <laughs> <front> <laughs>
1: I tell you what, uh, front row has been that one, two, three, Hayden. Langer and Ponting. That's Payne, Haas, Fisher, Harrison, Leota in it. That's... Yeah, that is that's a that's a pretty good front row. <laughs> right oh my, oh that is. Hey, just looking at the all time list, and I know I'll like. Thankfully,
7: one of them plays for the Broncos.
1: Oh, <laughs> hey, Doss, where were you for that match?
7: Mate, I was in Singapore um, with Steph Wright. Um, now it was just by coincidence that we were flying in diff... We were flying to Singapore. She was going to Dubai. I was going to India for the World Cup, but we watched it together. And it was a unique scenario because we were actually in the lounge together, but downstairs there was a, there was a, a pub and, it, and there was obviously, you know, 120 Australians there, of which I reckon 90% of them were Broncos. So every time <laughs> they cheered, I'd be like, going up in the lounge, going, "Oh, you're guilty. To, just to realise that we got absolutely flogged in the back you know, 20 minutes. It was the most demoralising bloody performance I've ever, I've ever been a part of in terms of a sporting event. Unbelievable.